Hey there, I'm Julie Slattery, and this is Java with Julie. This podcast is a production of Authentic Intimacy, a ministry dedicated to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. My guest on Java with Julie today is Dr. Preston Sprinkle, and I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Within the last decade, we've been swept up in a massive cultural shift in how we see gender, marriage, and sexuality. And as God's people, we're trying to navigate how to honor His design for sexuality without ever compromising the love of Jesus Christ. This tension leads to some difficult questions and, frankly, some painful relationship dynamics. And that's why I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to share with you my conversation with Preston Sprinkle. Preston is a sought-after teacher, and he does a phenomenal job of defending the traditional view of marriage in light of the scriptures. But he also helps Christians who hold that traditional view to understand that the LGBT community and those who affirm them are not the enemy. Preston is the author of many books, including People to be Loved, and we'll link to his resources on our podcast page. Now let's head to the coffee shop. So Preston, it is just a joy for me to talk to you because I feel like you're my people. (laughs) Like you're doing a similar kind of work to what God has called me to do. And there aren't many of us out there. There's not a lot of us out there. It can be really lonely. Yes. I've read some of your books and listened to some podcast episodes. And one thing that strikes me about the way that you address particularly LGBTQ issues is you don't compromise God's word but you're the most compassionate voice I've ever heard on the topic in terms of just really wanting to understand people's story and their pain. And I wonder, how did that evolve in you? Well, it's kind of a long backstory. I mean, I did begin my research in this topic as an academic looking at a academic issue. So I you know, read lots of books, got the commentaries out, did all this academic research. But early on in my journey... I just uh, reached out and started to get to know LGBT people to listen to their stories. And I was just really floored by how many were raised in the church or had some experience of Christianity and how almost all of them, it was a tremendously negative experience. And I'm not talking negative like, oh, somebody, you know, walk me through what the scripture says about sexuality and I just couldn't follow that view, so I had to walk away from the faith. You know, I mean, if that was the case, you know, we can live with that. People can be exposed to the truth and decide that that's not for them, and that's, you know, I'd rather have that than somebody try to fake it, you know. But in almost every case, it was just tremendous. I mean, lack of love would be an understatement. I mean, in some cases, just shame and ridicule and being mocked or made fun of or kicked out of the house or just simply for wrestling with their sexuality. It's not like they were like living in open rebellion against God yet. In many cases, they were simply wrestling with their sexuality and they were trying to do so in a Christian context and were just had nobody to wrestle with. Or when they did reach out, they were just treated horribly. And it's just, as I often say, we we can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we're, we're wrong. We can't just get the truth of what marriage is right. That's a huge, important piece, and I will take a bullet for that any day of the week. But if we're not also embodying, the, as Paul says, the kindness of God that leads to repentance, then we're not really embodying a holistic, gospel-centered vision for sexuality. Mm. So, How long ago was that? That was, I want to say 2012, 2013 was when I started to really dig into the topic. 
I guess even before that, I remember hearing a pastor friend. I was at Cornerstone Church where Francis Chan was at, and one of the pastors on staff started to get a real heart for LGBT people. This is before I got into the topic. And I remember asking him, well, where did that come from? You know, why, do you, why do you have that? He's like, well, I, one of my gay neighbors, I think it was, you know, um, told me that I've never met a Christian who was even kind to me. And that sparked a heart in him saying, well, that's not right. What a horrible vision of Christianity that this whole community has. And, and so he started to kind of reach out just by being just kind to LGBT people, which was kind of revolutionary for some to receive kindness from other Christians. So, so that kind of stuck with me so that when I began my own kind of journey, I kind of took the same posture of, man, if simply being kind to people who are in the LGBT community is, is shocking, you know, then how much more can we do if we go beyond just kindness, but actually embodying the grace of Jesus toward this community. Yeah. You can look at what's happened over the last 10 years or so on gender issues and say, wow, there's a lot of bad things that have happened. Mm -hmm. But there's some good things that have happened, too. Mm -hmm. And that's one of them is I know in my lifetime growing up in a Christian church, LGBTQ issues were always treated differently than any other struggle or sin. Was that your experience, too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... In a Bible study, you can raise your hand and say, I'm struggling with pride or even struggling with lust or I was looking at porn and I want to repent. And, and people typically will come around you and pray for you and everything. But if, you know, as one friend of mine said, this happened like a year ago, he raised his hand and said, well, actually, I struggle with uh, feeling like I'm a woman, even though I'm a man and, you know, just silence. And it's yeah. like, okay, so I, this is not a place where I can struggle. Everybody else can kind of struggle with whatever, but I can't struggle with the thing that I didn't choose for myself. This is just something I've always lived with. As uh, Jim Daly said, um, you know, the two things in the New Testament are salvation by faith in Jesus and don't be a Pharisee. (laughs) And that's that's just, it just seems so pharisaical for us to be okay with certain struggles, but not with other struggles, Mm -hmm. you know? And I understand if somebody's like standing up and rebelling against God and claiming to be a Christian, but living their own way or whatever, like, yeah, that behavior needs to be addressed and confronted, whether it's gay or straight. Mm -hmm. But there's just a large percentage of people who their journey in the church with their sexuality, same-sex sexuality or gender identity struggles, it begins as a struggle. Like they, Mm -hmm. almost in every case, they begin with an unwanted desire. They pray that God would take it away. They're searching for somebody to walk with them in this. And in most churches, not all, but in most churches, it's not really a conducive environment to struggle out loud in the context of family and to walk faithfully in this. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. What have you discovered over the last seven or eight years? I know you've spent a lot of time not just researching the scriptures and reading, but meeting people. Oh, it's been a long journey, and <laughs> I've discovered a lot of things. In my own heart, I just uh, quickly talk about theology. I've discovered that I think the traditional teaching on marriage and sexuality is mm-hmm. it's not ambiguous. I think it's yeah. the more I look at it, the more I try to consider other positions, the more confident I am in the traditional view. Like, I don't see this as some gray area that God hid from us. I've also seen that... Most people, whether they're gay and affirming or even straight, but still have an affirming theology, it's usually not about the theology. Mm -hmm. It's usually about LGBT people being mistreated by other Christians, either not cared for, lonely and isolated, or if they are addressed, if they're even acknowledged that they exist, it's oftentimes in a very negative, dehumanizing way. 
sometimes from well-intentioned Christians, we'll, we'll talk tonight at the seminar about the importance of language. Like we can really unintentionally dehumanize somebody just by using language in a way that we don't realize it, but might be offensive. Can you um, give an example of that? Sure. Yeah. So I've got a friend, uh, his name's Matt and he's from the time he was 13, unwanted same-sex attraction, mm-hmm. tried to pray it away, didn't go away, tried to go to therapy, whatever reason, God didn't take away this attraction. So out of allegiance to Jesus, he commits his life to celibacy. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any greater act of faithfulness than to yeah. say, in 2019, or oh, I guess it was like five years ago, but I mean, with all these other churches that are affirming I could go to, mm-hmm. no, I believe God says it's not okay to act on this. And even though I'd love to have a partner, mm-hmm. I'm going to set that aside for the rest of my life. I don't know what's gonna, who's going to care for me when I'm 70. You know, yeah. he's asking these questions, yes. but he goes, you know what, with all those difficulties... I am committed to celibacy. So he comes out to his elders at the age of 19 and says, you know, I just want you to know I'm, I'm gay. Meaning I'm just have this struggle, mm-hmm. but I'm not acting on it. I'm committed to celibacy. And one of the elders said, well, Matthew, we can't accept somebody with your lifestyle. Wow. So he heard the term gay. Mm-hmm. And this is common for straight, especially older conservative Christians. When they hear gay, they just mm-hmm. think an active sexual lifestyle, mm-hmm. even though Matthew was just saying, this is an attraction that I struggle with, but I'm submitting to Jesus. And another elder in that same conversation said, well, Matthew, we can't have you around our children anymore. Uh. And again, there's that assumption that if you're gay, that means you're also a child molester, you know? Mm-hmm. And yes, some people who are gay are also child molesters. I know a lot of people who are straight who are also child, you know, yes. that's a separate category, but these are well-intentioned elders. I think they were trying to be faithful. I think they were really trying to care for Matt, but because mm-hmm. they just had these kind of unthought out, rigid categories in mind, and they just mm-hmm. filtered everything through that. So, and that, that happens quite a bit where especially straight Christians use language and they don't realize that it, it can be offensive. So, um, yeah. yeah. I think um, as I've worked with Christian leaders and addressed the issue of language and even in my own life, like learned how do I use mm-hmm. language that's sensitive, there's some people that fear that it's capitulating. Yes. And I would be, just so you know, and our audience knows, I am more of the mindset, well, I'm more, my personality is I get kind of annoyed at the hyper-politically correct culture. Yes. <laughs> you know, or I look at, you know, Tumblr has 137 different gender identities to choose from, and my natural reaction is to say, oh, come on. Like, yeah. <laughs> or everybody offended at everything you say, or, you know, and so I'm, I'm naturally wired that way. And I do think that it can become ridiculous, mm-hmm. you know. But... If using a preferred term that isn't sacrificing my theology, it's just a preferred term. Mm-hmm. Like most people don't like to be called a homosexual. They would rather be called gay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What difference does it make to me? It kind of means the same thing. If right. one is kind of feels more offensive than the other, and if I want to embody the relational kindness of God that leads to repentance, then why wouldn't I use a word that's going to lay more of a bridge for a relationship rather than build a wall to hinder relationship? Mm-hmm if I genuinely want to embody the love of Jesus to this person. So, yeah, yeah, you know, things like, you know, we should never call somebody who identifies as transgender, don't call them a tranny. Mm -hmm. It's more of a slur, you know. Let's not say the gay lifestyle about everything. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't, if somebody came to me and said, Preston, are you straight? And I said, yes, I'm straight. So are you living the straight lifestyle? You know, I'm like, are you asking about my sex life? <laughs> like, that's just, it just sounds funny. Like when I tell straight people that, they kind of laugh. And I said, well, that's how gay people hear the gay lifestyle. It's just, 
It's just not a relational bridge building term, you know. I'm not sacrificing my theology by being sensitive to language, mm-hmm. you know, so, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned this idea of embodying Jesus, yeah. the kindness of Jesus, and people will say rightly, like we don't have in the gospel an example of Jesus encountering a transgender or right. a gay person, mm-hmm. and so we don't know how he'd react. Right. I'm guessing that you've studied the Gospels with that light of imagining, because we do have Jesus encountering um, sinners, Pharisees, you know, people that society or the or the religious society would view as untouchable. So we have principles, but let me give you a couple scenarios and just give me your gut reaction to how you think somebody that would embody the Spirit of Christ react to that. Okay. Um, So one scenario is you're living in. The culture you're living in the world, and you have a coworker who is transitioning mm-hmm. and wants to assume a different identity, wants to use different name pronouns. Yeah. How do you handle that as a coworker? Yes. First of all, I want to affirm what you said that we don't have explicit passages where Jesus encounters a gay couple or encounters this exact situation, but we do have many passages where he, how he relates to people who are considered socially unacceptable sinners by the religious elite. Mm -hmm. And that paradigm very much maps onto our modern day situation where LGBT people have been treated the same way by our kind of religious culture. So I think how Jesus reaches out to tax collectors, adulterers, I think those are good model to give us the principles on how we should reach out to gay people. And he always front loaded love and care and, kind of a non-pharisaical approach to these people. And I think that's why we should do the same for LGBT people. In that situation, I mean, I take the incarnation as kind of like a model for how to engage in any situation where we meet mm-hmm. somebody where they're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus didn't bring us up from earth to heaven and speak heaven to us. He came down and embodied sinful flesh, Romans says, and spoke Koine Greek. It's kind of like, you know... <laughs> mm-hmm. One of my professors said it was like kitchen Greek. It was kind of the uh, low-level Greek, kind of the people that blue-collar people would speak. So he met us where we're at, and he used our language. And I think that pattern shows us that we should do the same. I tell people, if you want to immediately just cut off a relationship with somebody who's trans, Mm -hmm. then just, yeah, refuse to use their pronouns. Then that relationship will go nowhere. Right, right. (laughs) I would say I want that relationship to go somewhere because Jesus did that for me. You know, he met me where I was at so that he can walk with me to where he wants me to ultimately be. So my, with the pronouns and names, I say, look, use whatever the person prefers, meet them where they're at. If they end up coming to Jesus, then part of the maybe long-term discipleship journey will be that we should help them to fully identify with their biological sex. I do think that is what God wants people to do. Mm-hmm. But man, if you, oh, you're a psychologist. You, I mean, uh, you walk with somebody who has struggled with intense gender dysphoria and it is, yeah. it's like nothing I could ever imagine. The way my trans friends will describe it, mm-hmm. every second of every day, feeling like you're in somebody else's body. And when you go out in public, you feel like everybody's, it, one of my trans friends, you know, said, well, Preston, just, just imagine yourself waking up tomorrow with, like large breasts Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and walking around town. How would you feel? You just feel like, imagine living every second of every day with usually multiple suicide, either attempts or thoughts, depression, anxiety, thinking God 
hates you for this unwanted struggle you have. Like that's a lot of internal shame and psychological turmoil to heap on somebody. So um, I want to. You even uh, add like every time you have to go to the restroom. What restroom do I go to? You go into a clothing it's store. It's a nightmare. What yeah. section do I go to? Um, yeah. Gender is so much a part of our society, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But sure. it, it puts a person who's struggling, and right. like you said, a minute by minute battle right. of anguish. Right. So I don't think I think bathrooms should be based on biological sex, uh-huh. changing facilities. So I, I think that's the way society is and should be. Mm-hmm. But I also want to walk with somebody who, for whatever reason, feels just incredibly marginalized, who is reminded every second of every day that I am different. I am other. Like what a great opportunity to embody the love of Jesus who sought out the other, who left the 99 to seek the one. And that's just a pattern in the New Testament of Jesus looking for those on the margins. And yeah, people that either identify as trans or experience gender dysphoria, like they feel marginalized every second of every day. Now, on the flip side, I understand that from all the politics and the trans activism and all this stuff, that can become infuriating. And I hear some stuff and some of the views that people have on what it means to be male and female are just, mm-hmm. I mean, unscientific, let alone yeah. <laughs> unbiblical. So I understand that the ideology can be very frustrating. And I think we should deconstruct and confront the ideology and raise up people in the faith with a biblical view of what it means to be male and female. And mm-hmm. But while we're doing that, we need to also extend hyper-compassion and understanding for the person who's struggling with mm-hmm. something that is, can be pretty torturous. Mm-hmm. You know. Why is it that the average person feels, I would say particularly the average Christian, feels fear with that even idea mm-hmm. of, I want to get to know a trans person or I want to get to know a gay couple? Yeah, that's good. Um, I think there's probably multiple reasons why someone would be fearful. I think for those who may either front politics over their faith or maybe will work out their faith through a very political kind of lens, political meaning like partisanship, (laughs) there might be this fear of like our country's you know, becoming morally bankrupt and this is the reason why and and they might end up seeing this person as the enemy. So It'd be like if you're going to war or something, you look across enemy lines and there's that fear combined with anger when you look at the enemy over there, you know. But Jesus is clear. The devil's our enemy. Right. <laughs> People who don't know Jesus are opportunities, not enemies. If you look at the country through this kind of black and white, good people, bad people, Christians and everybody else, and then especially those who are really pushing hard toward what we would consider like a moral degradation of our society, you may see them as... Yeah, as an enemy, not an opportunity. I think also there's just this intrinsic fear of the other, the unknown. Mm-hmm. So somebody who is trans, I mean, let's just be frank. You see a guy with a big beard and a dress, and it's like, yeah. no, I just don't even know where to start with mm-hmm. this. You may even say to yourself, wow, that person really needs Jesus. But in a sense, it's natural, not right, but it's natural to kind of say, you know what, life would be easier if I just talked to somebody else right yeah. now, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, that it, fear of the unknown, like, I don't there's know. There's an awkwardness. Yeah. Like, do you talk about the obvious? Right. Or do right. you engage with this individual just based on what are your hobbies, where do you work, like right. we would anyone else? Right. And right. one of the things that I think is really difficult is entering those relationships without an agenda. Mm-hmm. And I know you talked about having an agenda of, I just want to be kind, which yeah. is a good agenda. But we have other agendas, and I talk to Christians who feel like if I don't say something about my biblical beliefs yeah. about gender in our first meeting, like I've compromised. Right. 
I understand that concern, and in, in one sense, I applaud the robust desire to want to be biblical and consistent. I applaud that. We treat lots of other sinners without that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, your greedy neighbor with, you know, three too many cars and, you know, who doesn't give money to the poor, mm-hmm. which are like horrendous violations of a biblical world. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't know Jesus. I'm not going to walk over and say, I think you need to be more generous to the poor. So, yeah. yeah, sometimes I think when it comes to this conversation, we kind of flip the kind of gospel first, sanctification after paradigm, you mm-hmm. know. Yep. We feel like we need to address the sexuality or gender thing before they even know Jesus. But until they've had a an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, why would they give up mm-hmm. their pursuit of happiness? You know, right. if any of us were in that boat and we had gender dysphoria and everybody around us is saying, transition, be who you are, otherwise you're going to kill yourself and you're going to be miserable. And mm-hmm. we would all try, why wouldn't you? Right. I mean, uh, and we'd be fighting for our country to pay for it, you know? Yes. And, yeah. Um, so it's like, put yourself in their shoes, mm-hmm. but it's only when you've had a, an encounter with the risen Jesus that where a Christian view of sexuality and gender is going to make sense anyway. So just Well, let's talk about that yeah. because we've been discussing kind of what to do with somebody that you just meet yeah. out in the culture that doesn't know the Lord. But there's a lot of conversation among Christians, people mm-hmm. that genuinely have a relationship with Jesus, yeah. but for their own lives, for their family, a loved one, or even just as they look at what's happening in the world, they're very affirming and they would say you know jesus is love and we need to be love and we could talk about the theological nuances of it but even more so how do we dialogue with brothers and sisters who have a very different view on this that's a really tough one for me because i don't see the theological disagreement between brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. as insignificant i think Mm -hmm. this is not some you know, like we're debating the timing of the rapture or something, which I don't see as a primary right, right. <laughs> theological thing we should divide over. Some people do. So yes, I see the theological disagreement very significant. And that creates tension for me because when there's serious theological disagreement within the church community, I don't, I gave up judging people's salvation a long time ago. So yeah. people always want to know, do you think you're Christians? Right. Like, oh, God, that's just, yeah. It's too tiring judging everybody's <laughs> salvation. So I'm like, that's up to God. I can affirm that I think this is a serious departure from biblical Christianity. And I can also say only God knows where where they're at, you Mm -hmm. know. We have loads of Christians throughout history who either owned slaves or mistreated women or did all kinds of stuff that we look back and we're like, how could you? they justified it by chapter and verse. (laughs) Exactly, Uh, exactly. And Uh I I don't think we're willing to write off every Christian who had a significant blind spot. So I think we... I don't want to lump all people who are affirming of same-sex marriage, who are Christians as well, into one category. You know, I know some friends that, man, they sought this conversation. They sought, you know, with blood, sweat, and tears, wrestling with passages and prayer and wanting to honor God, and they have landed on an affirming view. I still very much disagree, but I can at least respect their journey, whereas some people, they don't even care about opening up the Bible, Jesus' love. Oprah says it's fine, Mm -hmm. this is my desire, and, you know, I'm going to pursue that. To me, that's coming from a really fundamentally off kind of posture. Mm -hmm. So I think there they may land on, both land on a view that I significantly disagree with, but they did come at that view in a very different manner. One was much more humble, one's much more arrogant. So I don't know, I, I do see those as somewhat different. And also, if somebody is nurtured, say, in an affirming environment, maybe the only brand of traditional, a traditional view has been nothing but hate-filled, yes. hypocritical. 
I mean, I was just horror story. I'll share some tonight. Some horror stories of people in the name of Jesus being horrifically abused mm-hmm. sexually, physically. And for some people, the traditional view, traditional Christianity is associated with just horror and abuse mm-hmm. and let alone just mistreatment, anger and, you know, mm-hmm. hatred. Put yourself in their shoes, you know, if that's the only exposure to a traditional view they know and then they've been presented with arguments that are even from the Bible for an affirming view, it's like, well, I can give them a lot more grace. Now, if there's a leader who knows better, mm-hmm. who is teaching the affirming view, that's the person that I'm going to struggle with a lot more. And I'm going to probably do more confronting, but I will address maybe their mm-hmm. arguments and show why I think that they're not being faithful to Scripture. Right. You know? um, yeah. But for somebody who's just coming, again, you're a psychologist, you know, I mean, for a lot of people, they hold their view out of a place of pain and trauma. Yes. So it's like yeah. the whole theological view that they're espousing is really just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much lying beneath that. And that's why it's so important not just to have the theological debate, but yeah. to really get to the heart of, exactly right. and you'll find a story of, well, my brother mm-hmm. is gay and yeah. the way he was treated in our home church and my parents disowned him. And yeah. it's like, okay, mm-hmm. let's talk about that pain and what that's like for you. Most people I know who hold to an affirming view, it comes from a place of experiencing pain and hatred in a more conservative church environment. Mm-hmm. In, most, in most cases I know. Rarely do they, is it because they sat down with both views in front of them and without any sort of relational concerns, they just said, oh, I think this affirming view is superior. I mean, it's pretty hard to, I mean, come on, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> if you lay out just on paper the arguments, it's like, I think the traditional view yeah. probably has. Well, you have to start fudging on yeah. a lot of other things besides just sexuality and scripture. Right. And we do have a particular generation growing up in the church that doesn't know basic theology. So it's easy to see how they can take leaps there. And yeah. I think you're right. There's a difference between those that are teaching and mm-hmm. should know better yeah. and those that are maybe immature in their faith yeah. and uh, making decisions more based on what feels right, Right. which we all can have a tendency sure. to do. Yeah. 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 But speaking right. of pain, probably the most painful emails I'm getting today are from parents. Mm. And I'm sure you're getting them too. A lot. We yeah. raised my son or daughter in a Christian home and out of the blue coming home with either I'm confused about my gender yeah. or I'm same-sex attracted and I'm going to act on that. Right. And these parents don't know where to begin uh, with their own heartbreak, but yeah. more importantly, how to, how to interact with their kids yeah. in the midst of this. Yeah, that's such a tough one. If you're out there and wrestling with that, my number one go-to resource for parents, it's put out by Lead Them Home Ministries, and it's called Guiding Families. It's in its second edition now. You can only get it on the Lead Them Home website. It is hands down the best resource. I always tell parents, there's two things you need to do, I think, is really dig in and just listen to your son, daughter, listen to their story, show that you care about their story, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, I think, do you, you might need to play some catch-up on, on getting up to speed on in this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think a combination of reading good books, yeah. good resources to help educate yourself on some of the complexity of this conversation, and then also showing your, your child that you deeply care for them and that you will love them no matter what, even if there is disagreement. Mm-hmm. I think you do need to make that clear that love is not... I'm going to agree with everything you're doing or saying. Uh, There might be even like a tough love aspect of some relationships, but I'm seeing more and more, especially with teenagers, 
again, going back to the trauma, there's often, not every case, but oftentimes a lot of pain or Mm -hmm. some level of trauma that's going on there. I don't have a statistic for this, but in my anecdotal experience, especially among teenage girls, and we do have statistics on just astronomical increase in female teenagers identifying as something other than female. Uh, The gender thing has just exploded. There's been a 5,000% increase at the Tavistad, the main gender clinic in London over the last 10 years. They've seen a 5,000% increase. Oh, I mean, and these are like secular liberal people who are freaking out saying, okay, there's some... Well, there was something just, in the water there was here. Just that study done, I think, in California that said like 27 percent yeah. of teenagers yeah. are identifying yeah. as not yeah. as a transgender as not, or gender nonconforming. Right, yeah. which is statistically, we look at been less than one yes. percent historically. Yes, and for sure, some of those that are now identifying maybe had private struggles, but not at the rate we're seeing. Exactly. And so, is there a difference between somebody that? genuinely has gender dysphoria and the rash of teenagers that we're seeing just this is the cool thing this is what everybody's doing this is something psychologists over the last two or three years have really started to dig into so there has been historically what psychologists would call early onset gender dysphoria sometimes you can see signs as early as three years old three four or five years old and then you have this more newer thing of teenagers who seems like they come out as trans almost overnight with no prior evidence of gender dysphoria. The term that some psychologists are using is rapid onset gender dysphoria, ROGD, where it sounds like it's a fancy term. It just means this whole idea that there's probably some level of social contagion. The main study on this was by Lisa Littman out of Brown University. And didn't they suppress that study? They did. They took it down because mm-hmm. the activists didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that she was interviewing only parents and not the kids, which is like, well, that's what the study's about. And some people misunderstood her for saying that all trans people are being trendy. And that's not at all what she said at all. But this certainly accounts for the massive rise, at least with some, especially teenagers. And, And there's now we're seeing some teenagers who have kind of gone through that and then came out and said, yeah, that was kind of just a trend. Yeah, was, particularly girls. Particularly it's girls. Much more fluid. Yes. Yeah, I think about when I was growing up, what girls did with insecurity and pain. It mm. was eating disorders. Right. It was bulimia. And then we went through a rash where it was cutting. Yeah. And it's not that girls aren't experiencing pain, mm-hmm. but it's where society is telling them to go with right. that pain. And today it's all about sexuality and yeah. gender fluidity and yeah. Yeah. experimentation. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's so true. There, there's a group of four girls they run. It's called the Peak, P-I-Q-U-E, Peak Resilience Project. And they're four detransition 2021-year-olds. 20, and they just said, yeah, it was just in the air. It was, it was also driven by stereotypes. Like, we are, look, we're clearly biologically female, but because we might like sports or might not like to wear dresses, everything around us said, oh, then you must be right. trans. You can't right. be a female. It's like, well, and then they realize... All you're doing is resurrecting these old stereotypes in the 60s yes. that to be a woman means you wear high heels and wear your hair long and wear a dress. And it's like... I don't fit in any of those. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and yeah. a lot of women don't. I know right. a lot of women that said, I, I if I was it, raised in today's world, I, I probably know. would have been said I, I was or, And people would speak that on yeah. you. Like there must be mm. something wrong with your femininity because right. you like basketball and football. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. And I think it makes us drill down into what does it really mean to be masculine and feminine? Yes. You know, if it's not about our hobbies, 
what is a masculine soul and a feminine soul? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, those are critical questions to be asking. Do you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. This is something, so when I look at scripture, I see clear celebration of sex differences, male, yes. female, we both reflect God's image in overlapping but different ways. In terms of masculinity and femininity, I see a lot of real flexibility. I mean, you have yeah. women winning wars and men crying and kissing each other and playing the harp, playing <laughs> yeah. the harp and writing poetry, you know, and, yeah. and most of the prophets, these manly men were poets, you know, and David, King David dragged his harp to my high school. He probably would have gotten beat up. Well, he could hold his own. He could, yeah. you know, <laughs> <That's great. laughs> but a good friend of mine who struggles with gender dysphoria, who is trying to live faithfully, you know, they ask me quite often, well, Preston, so what does it look like mm-hmm. to identify with my biological sex? Because I use that phrase, like I think people should identify with their biological sex. Yeah. And this friend of mine says, you know, okay, what, can I mow the lawn? Mm-hmm. Is it okay if I wear baggy shirts and jeans? You know, it's oh, like, it's and I'm so like, sad man, that they're asking that. I know, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I can say, I think there's a lot of flexibility. I see very few gender specific commands in the Bible, yeah. few, there's maybe a couple. But I don't know. I, that's, I'm on a journey to try to figure that out. Do you, do you, have you looked into this much? I just, uh, yeah, <laughs> I've thought about it a lot. I think it's not just what we were created to be, but where our vulnerabilities are. Okay. Like, I think a masculine vulnerability is the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like at the root of the masculine heart, mm-hmm. which is to let everybody down, to not live up to expectations. Yeah. For women, it's more about abandonment. It's mm-hmm. more about being accepted. And on the positive side for men, I just had this conversation with one of my sons yesterday. You know, I just talked about how men were created like to conquer ground. Mm. Men need a battle to fight. Mm. You know, it's part of the masculine soul of Mm. just being an initiator, being willing to take risk, sacrificing. Mm -hmm. And for women, it's more that receptivity, responsiveness. And so those are intangible qualities, but... But I think the more we can help people understand the beauty of both that masculine Mm -hmm. soul and the feminine soul, it helps us know, regardless of what colors you like or what hobbies you have, what does it mean to reflect the image of God uniquely as a man or a woman? Yeah, 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 that's good. We have a lot of these kind of conversations around my home. We have three boys. Oh, really? So, yeah. Yeah. I got three girls. Do you? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Yeah. So you have different conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Probably very similar, but yeah, yeah, that's funny. It's hard. It's hard these days to walk even Christian kids through this. And I know you had mentioned before we started recording that a large percentage of the LGBTQ population actually is coming out of a church yeah. environment. Is that true? Yeah. There was a study done a while back by uh, Andrew Marin. It was the largest sociological study done on the religious background of LGBT people. And he found that 83% of LGBT people were raised in a Christian church. 51% of that 83 left the church after 18. But then he dug in to figure out, well, why did they leave? And most people, whether on the right or the left, are going to assume the same thing. Well, they left because of the traditional view of marriage, but only 3% who left said they left primarily for theological reasons around sin and marriage and sexuality and things mm-hmm. like that. Most of them left because they were, they didn't feel safe. They weren't listened to. They were verbally harassed, you know, or just not cared for. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, to kind of bring it back to the original point. I mean, I, 
very passionate about people who hold to a traditional view to keep holding to that traditional view, but then also knowing like you can genuinely love LGBT people without changing your theology. Because that's really what drives people to change their theology. They just want to love LGBT people better, whether it's yeah. themselves or a friend or a son, daughter. And it's like, well, you can still love them without changing your theology. So that sounds great. <laughs> But how? How? Do we, how? <laughs> I know. What does it look like? If, That's if you, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you're walking yeah. around a church community, yeah. as you get to know Christians, what are the things that we're doing that we shouldn't do? Yeah, there's so much. I think we've touched on a few. I mean, one is treating this whole topic as something completely separate. Mm-hmm. For instance, if you give a, a sermon illustration and you want to rattle off a bunch of sins— and remind people that God's grace is available. Look, you can be struggling with an addiction. Some of you are, are struggling with, you know, your same-sex sexuality. Some of you are, you know, know you need help with your porn addiction or whatever. And every single gay person I know that is trying to follow Jesus says, you know, they tell me, can we just be included in mm-hmm. under the umbrella of we're all sinners, you know? Because mm-hmm. it's like we talk about all sinners and then, oh, but then there's these special kind. And then we have, we have a separate sermon on, yeah, on that and it one just, topic. It, Othering and dehumanizing, you know. Um, I think also understanding that every single, well, I don't like to make such absolute statements. Let's just say 99% of LGBT people, who, especially those raised in a church, which is a high percentage, struggle with profound internal shame and sense of self-worthlessness mm-hmm. simply for struggling. Not Again, there's a big difference between shame and guilt, right? Guilt is when you did something wrong, right? I do something wrong and I feel guilty for doing something wrong. Shame is feeling like my very existence is just wrong. Mm-hmm. Like I am intrinsically not valuable before God, which is just not biblical, right? So I think understanding that component, at least, I don't know, I mean, that doesn't answer all the questions, but when you understand that somebody is wrestling with so much internal shame and sense of worthlessness, like... Typically, for most Christians, that should trigger some level of compassion. Like, oh man, that would be horrible to really, you know, live like that. And then just, I think, creating a church culture where people can wrestle out loud. The worst thing you can do, worst thing you can do, is create an environment for any type of person that says, "Oh, I can't wrestle with this. I must keep this inside of me and keep it secret." Mm-hmm. I don't know a psychologist in the world who would say, "Yes, that's healthy for a person to keep something bottled up, keep it inside." wrestle with it by yourself. No, no, you need to walk with people in this. And so we need to create church cultures and environments where people feel free to not sin, but feel free to admit their sin and struggle with whatever they're struggling with. Some people are not ready to admit or even to struggle. They just want to be part of your community, part Mm -hmm. of your church. They want you to invite them over for dinner. Sure. How do we speak with compassion into the shame you're talking about without necessarily saying, all right, mm-hmm. tell me all these deep sins you're struggling with. <laughs> I mean, I could answer but you're the psychologist. I want to know what yeah, you're... <laughs> hey, our, you audience, have... <laughs> our audience gets to hear from me all the time. <laughs> you're the special guest. On a real practical level, I found that simply being a very good, genuine listener can... If you haven't taken that step, that would be by far the first step. I'm not a good counselor at all, but I have learned to be a good listener. That's half of being a good counselor. Is it? I mean, that's more, what I found. More than I, that, like asking good questions yeah. and just listening. And gen, like people know when you're genuinely listening or listening in order to refute or, you know, yeah. but to stare inside someone's soul and just listen to their story and show just a bodily posture of compassion and care. I mean, that, that can 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I've seen that just go. Sometimes I'll sit down with somebody and I won't say a word. I'll sit there for an hour or two and then they'll say, oh, thank you so much. I feel so much better. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't say a thing, you know. I could have been thinking about the ball game for all you know, you know. Yeah, but you um, weren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think some of it is learning to ask the awkward question. Yeah. And admit that it's awkward. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that's something that you're pushing into yeah. when you're listening. There's an obvious question hanging there that maybe, yeah. what would you like me to call you? Or mm-hmm. do you yeah. feel comfortable telling me about when you first yeah. began to identify as a woman? Or, you know, some of those mm-hmm. questions that it's like, am I allowed to ask that? Yeah. How do you navigate yeah. that? It depends on the level of the relationship. If it's a brand new relationship, you can tell the person doesn't really trust you yet. Mm-hmm. Then I would, I think, ask questions, but make sure you're not being maybe too invasive. Mm-hmm. When I ask for someone's story, I just want to know, like, when did you start realizing you were attracted to the same sex? That's not an invasive. That's what we're talking yeah. about, right? Mm-hmm. I would also ask, like, have you been, like, mistreated? Mm-hmm. Even if it's unintentional, like, have, it can become really horrific to overhear somebody tell a gay joke and then yeah. your best friend who doesn't know you're gay, you know, laughs. And that can be just, again, magnify the internal shame you're already experiencing. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, one thing I highly encourage especially leaders to do or people who are seen in a position of leadership, which includes parents, to ask the person you're talking to, if it's a friend or relative, you know, is there anything I've done that has really hurt you or offended you? Would would love to know that. And maybe you can help me to better walk with you. And this is where the fear can come in. Well, they're going to ask me to change my theology. If they do, you say, I'm sorry, I can't. That's not, I'm not going to apologize for my theology. But I've rarely seen... It come to that. Usually it's some relational thing that you've done, some word you've said. But for you to show vulnerability to say, I, I, that's a good way to show you are actually genuinely trying to embody love is to say, I want to change something in my life if something I'm doing is causing pain in your life, you know. How do we support parents that are walking through this? Mm-hmm. You know, I know so many parents who yeah. are on this journey and they feel very alone they can't tell mm-hmm. even some of their closest friends yeah or when they do every decision they make yes. is coming under scrutiny so there was a study done by a doctoral student under dr mark yarhouse a christian mm-hmm. psychologist who is kind of a specialist in this area and this doctoral student his dissertation was on parents of lgbt kids and i think either concluded or analyzed how the parents even have their own kind of closeted coming out fears, very similar, not to the same degree as somebody who is actually gay, but they do have all the, what you mentioned, you know, this like, Oh, if somebody finds out what's going to happen and they don't know who to talk to. So really practically, I mean, I've seen pastors do this and it's gone really well. I mean, whether it's part of a teaching series or maybe just not, I mean, to stand up on stage and say, look, if any of you parents, I mean, I would start with if any of you are wrestling with your sexuality and you want you just want somebody safe to talk to, maybe you have three or four people in your church that you know are a safe person to talk to. And being safe means, like, you can come talk to me. I'm not going to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Stay just between us. And But if you do, like, I want to walk with you in this. If you put people on stage, I've seen people do this. You put them on stage, say, here's my cell phone number, text me if, if you want to talk. And their phone lights up that week. There are so many more people in our churches struggling than people realize. I've heard pastors say, you know, well, Preston, I'm really thankful for what you do. You know, we don't have this issue at our church, but I'm thankful you're... And I'm like, first of all, it's not an issue. Second of all, yes, you do. I mean, percentage-wise, 
what, like three or 4% might identify as LGBT, but another, you can add to that another five, six, 7% that maybe they've been through a same sex abusive situation that has confused them. Maybe they've experimented. Maybe they wouldn't say they're gay, but they've had some waves of same sex desires or maybe even a same sex erotic dream. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that we don't talk about. That's up about 10%, maybe the population. And as we said, saw earlier, that statistics, it's not, this isn't an outside the church thing. This is very much. So, you know, if a pastor has 500 people in their church and tells me they don't have this issue, I'm like, you got probably about 40 or 50 people in your congregation. Mm -hmm. 98% probably are just sitting there silent and scared. I've had so, I mean, I get the emails. I'm talking like, I've got loads of closeted gay pastor friends. Sorry, I need to clarify that pastors who experience unwanted same-sex attractions that they don't act on. They're mm-hmm. married to women. They have kids, grandkids. I get the emails almost every and week. where do they go? Where, and if there's yeah. pastors, well, how many are in our congregation yeah. that, that are just so scared of being found out simply for struggling with this desire? You know? If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the way genuine Christians are approaching this conversation, what would you change? On a 30,000-foot level, I'd say break the silence. Silence can be a deafening dehumanization. That's not a complete sentence, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like when churches just say, well, I'm just not going to touch this topic. I'm like, issues related to sexuality and gender are among the most pressing ethical questions facing the church today. I mean, there's other big ones, abortion, others. But these are among the top. If we're pastoring our people and not discipling them and educating them in this conversation, I, this sounds bold, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> that seems pastorally irresponsible. Like, how are we not helping our people think through some of those pressing theological and ethical questions facing the church? And whenever, I can't tell you how many people, you know, because this is what I do full time. I help churches have this conversation. And what ends up happening is pastors starts talking about it. They start getting put up writing resources for their people. And they start inviting parents of gay kids to, hey, you can come talk to us. We want to walk with you in this. And just tears streaming down people's faces. And the response is always, thank you for caring enough to just have the conversation. Mm-hmm. So that would be my big... Now, we want to have the conversation well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some pastors are, you know, I'm going to preach on this next week. And I start talking to them. I'm like... Let's hold off on that for a little bit. Let's get you educated a little bit before you do. But look, I know I've been in ministry. I know there's so many demands, so many things. You're just trying to pay the bills and keep people at church and keep marriages together. And so I understand the demands, but I think this conversation is worthy of some pastoral attention on some level. Well, I'm grateful for the ministry and the wisdom that God has given Preston. It's exciting for me to see God raise up a generation of leaders who are walking out their faith with both the truth of His Word and the love of Jesus Christ. We need to be in dialogue to learn from one another how to effectively live out the gospel in our times. That's my commitment, and I hope it's yours as well. We'll link to Preston's resources on our podcast page at AuthenticIntimacy.com. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to having coffee with you again next time on Java with Julie.